As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Before we get started, I just wanted to take a quick moment to thank every one of you who has helped this show succeed. In a relatively short time, it's grown more than I ever could have hoped. And it's all because of faithful listeners like you. You can help me make the show grow even more by telling your friends and family about us, and especially by subscribing and downloading the show on iTunes and leaving me a review. If I continue to build the number of listeners who like to hear about these stories of the creepy and bizarre, there are all sorts of special bonuses I'll be able to provide you. No matter how you're listening, whether it's on iTunes, Stitcher, the Google Play Store, or on our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, Thank you so much for tuning in. Now on with the show. We live in a civilized age, a time of science and modern technology, where our rapid means of communication have tied the world together in ways that were unimaginable even a few decades ago. But as modern and sophisticated as we believe this world to be, there are still places that are very much steeped in ancient traditions. Places that seem frozen in time and hold fast to superstition, ancient magical rituals, and sometimes bloody violence. Along the southwestern coast of Papua New Guinea, near the Arafura Sea, is a remote region of jungle that's home to an ethnic group known as the Azmat. By the best estimates, there are more than 50,000 Azmat inhabiting the area. Although the name Azmat is a blanket term for the many natives, there are actually 12 different ethnic subgroups between them, each with their own unique dialects and cultural affinities. There are no roads in the area, and the more than 10,000 miles of land has never seen a single automobile. Although there is a tiny airstrip just outside the main city, and I use the term city loosely, of agates. Much of the terrain is taken up by knee-deep mud and mangrove swamps caused by the Arafura Sea swelling up far past the coastline into the jungle itself. Because of the constant flooding, Azmat homes are typically built on wooden posts two or more meters off the ground. It's an area of jungle that's teeming with life, providing everything the inhabitants need to live there. Materials for canoes, dwellings, and wood carvings are all gathered locally. The Azmat are known worldwide for their wood carvings, and their intricately detailed work is highly valued by art collectors. The marshlands and surrounding sea are rich with edible sea creatures, including fish, shrimp, crabs, and clams. The jungles are home to wild pigs, cassowary birds, sago palms, and the larvae of Capricorn beetle, all of which comprise much of the Azmat people's diets. But historical records show it's not the only thing. 
You see, the Azmat people also have a much darker history, one that's steeped in ritual headhunting and cannibalism. In times of war, the Azmat were known to eat the brains of their enemies mixed with sago worms right from the halved skulls. Skulls were worshipped by the Azmat and were a key part of their native rituals. They even used them as pillows to sleep on. Traditionally, Azmat children were all named for someone who had died, often a deceased enemy. Sometimes a child was only given a name about ten years after he or she was born, and only then, after hunters from the village sought out a neighboring village and killed someone, bringing back their skull in order to take their name. The Azmat's first encounter with Europeans was with the Dutch in 1623. However, due to their remote location, along with the well-documented stories of hostile natives, the Azmat were more or less left alone by outsiders until the mid-20th century. In 1953, Catholic missionaries began arriving in the area and were reportedly able to successfully convince the Azmat that headhunting and eating human flesh was wrong. But even though officially the gruesome practices were given up by the Azmats, there are still persistent rumors that not all the individual tribes were quite so willing to give up their old ways. All of which brings us to Michael Rockefeller. On November 19, 1961, Michael Rockefeller, the privileged son of then-New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller, vanished after a canoeing accident off the Azmat coast. Officially, Rockefeller drowned that day, but many other stories have come forward over the years that point to a much more grisly fate for the billionaire's son. I'm Nate Hale, currently slow-roasting over an open flame until tender and delicious, and this is The Conspirators. Michael Rockefeller was born on May 18, 1938, the fifth child of New York Governor and later Vice President Nelson Rockefeller. The Rockefellers are an American industrial, political, and banking dynasty, with enough history about them to fill their own show. In short, though, the Rockefellers are really, really rich, and really, really powerful. Michael was one of seven children fathered by Nelson Rockefeller, including his twin sister Mary. From the start, Michael was groomed to take his place among the titans of industry. He attended the Buckley School in New York and later the Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire, where he was a student senator and highly ranked varsity wrestler. He went on to attend Harvard, where he graduated cum laude with a BA in history and economics. In 1960, he served six months as a private in the U.S. Army. Then he went on to take part in an expedition for Harvard's Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology to study the Dani tribe of western New Guinea. By most accounts, during that expedition, Michael didn't really act like the heir to a billion-dollar fortune. The expedition crew filmed a documentary titled Dead Birds, for which Michael served as the crew's sound recordist. He was thought to be rather humble and willing to get his hands dirty and do whatever work was required. There have been those who have written about Michael who have suggested that part of the reason Michael felt so comfortable on this adventure into the jungle was because his wealthy and privileged upbringing left him with a sense of invulnerability. The idea that Michael's name and money would be able to buy his way out of any problem. This was something that proved to be completely untrue. 
During the expedition, Michael discovered and became enamored with the beautiful wood carvings created by the Azmats. Michael had long been fascinated by art, particularly primitive and tribal art. In fact, in 1957, he helped establish the first ever museum dedicated to such art, the Museum of Primitive Art in Manhattan. After the first expedition came to an end, Michael briefly returned to the U.S., before heading back to Papua New Guinea, this time with his sights set on studying the Azmats along the southwestern coast. Michael planned to live among the Azmat and to collect as many pieces of art as he could for his museum. This was going to be a much more dangerous trip than before. This time, Michael would be almost entirely on his own. His only companion on this trip was anthropologist Rene Wassing. And whereas the Danny people Michael had previously lived with were a peaceful agricultural community, the Azmats still had a reputation as fierce warriors, and they were only a few years removed from their previous worship of headhunting and cannibalism. Something else about the Azmat people that bears mentioning. They maintained a deeply ingrained sense of balance in the universe. The Azmat believed that any tribesman's death at the hands of another needed to be balanced out with a reciprocal death. Vengeance was a spiritual obligation that needed to be paid back in blood. In the old days, Azmat warriors would descend upon an enemy village and slaughter every man, woman, and child, rubbing their blood on 20-foot-long poles and consuming their flesh in order to absorb their enemy's power. Michael knew the stories about the Azmat's bloody history, but he went forward with his trip anyway. After all, there wasn't any trouble he couldn't get out of. He was a Rockefeller, after all. On November 17, 1961, Michael Rockefeller and Rene Wassing were on a makeshift catamaran along with two field guides on a trip to collect some Azmat wood carvings. They were traversing the mouth of a wide river that faced the Eurofira Sea when large waves flooded the engine and caused it to conk out. Unable to restart the engine, the boat drifted further away from the mouth of the river and was soon capsized by more waves. The two guides told them to sit tight while they swam to shore to get help. Rockefeller and Wassing clung to the boat for another 24 hours while they waited for rescue. As they did, the boat began drifting perilously out into the Arafura Sea. They were around 12 miles from shore and drifting farther away when Michael decided to swim for it. He told Wassing he thought he could make it, and there's actually a reasonable chance that he could. Michael was a strong swimmer and in excellent physical condition. Wassing tried talking Michael out of it, a Rockefeller strapped on a pair of gasoline tanks for buoyancy and dove into the water. As it turns out, Michael would have been better off staying with the boat. Not long after, Wassing was finally rescued by the guides, who had left them the day before. But by the time they returned, Michael was nowhere to be found. The disappearance of the heir to such a wealthy and powerful family quickly became international news. The Dutch government launched a massive air, land, and sea search but no sign of Michael was ever discovered. Michael's father Nelson and his twin sister Mary flew to the region to join in the search. But after two weeks, the search was called off and the Dutch government officially concluded that Michael had drowned, despite finding no real evidence to support this conclusion. Michael was just... gone. But at the same time the Dutch government was putting Michael Rockefeller's disappearance to rest, there was another, more disturbing rumor brewing about his fate. A story began circulating among the locals that Michael had actually made it to shore, but that he had then been killed and eaten by a tribe known as the Otsjenep. 
The Ochdenep had a particularly bloodthirsty reputation among the different Azmat tribes, and their settlement was right near where Michael would have likely reached shore. That is, if he'd been able to swim that far. This rumor was further given credence by an Associated Press article in 1962 that quoted a Dutch Catholic missionary who claimed to have direct knowledge that the Ochdenep had killed and eaten an unidentified white man. The Dutch government was quick to denounce the article as fanciful nonsense, claiming that cannibalism had long since ended throughout the region. It should be pointed out that at the same time all this was going on, the Dutch government was in the process of readying Papua New Guinea for independence, and the last thing they needed were stories of headhunting cannibals causing negative publicity for them. Although some people claim Michael Rockefeller had been killed and eaten by cannibals, there were still others who made yet another disturbing claim, that Michael hadn't died at all, and that he had been taken captive by a native tribe, and that he was still alive. In 1964, Michael Rockefeller was officially declared dead, although the rumors and conspiracy theories surrounding his death persisted. One of the first serious attempts to get to the bottom of all the stories was undertaken in 1969 by a journalist named Milt Macklin. Macklin was an editor for Argosy magazine, and he had his own bizarre tale to tell about Michael Rockefeller. Macklin claimed that one night while working late in the Argosy office, a mysterious Australian man named Donahue showed up and made the cryptic statement, Suppose I told you that I saw Michael Rockefeller alive only ten weeks ago. Donahue claimed to be a smuggler of native artifacts who was doing business in a native village on Trobriand Island, when he stumbled across an injured white man who told him he was Michael Rockefeller. The Australian said he couldn't risk attempting to save Rockefeller himself, but he brought his story to Macklin in order to find someone who could. It was a strange claim since Trobriand Island was hundreds of miles away from where Michael Rockefeller was last seen. Intrigued, Macklin decided to get to the bottom of all the rumors himself. Now if you think the story about the mysterious Mr. Donahue sounds a bit hard to believe, you're not alone. To me, it comes across a little too much like the sort of fictional encounter you'd see in a Hollywood movie, with a mysterious figure appearing out of the shadows to give a vital piece of information to the intrepid investigator. Keep in mind, Argosy Magazine was primarily a men's adventure magazine devoted to publishing pulp fiction. And Milt Macklin himself was a bit of a larger-than-life character as well. Thick-mustached, burly, and barrel-chested, Macklin was a cigar-chomping former military veteran who looked every bit the part of a world-traveling adventure writer straight out of central casting. But Macklin also proved to be very good at documenting his trip. And there's plenty of evidence to support his findings during his trip to find Michael Rockefeller, as you'll hear. When Macklin got to Papua New Guinea, he heard further stories claiming that a native tribe had captured Michael and sailed with him to their village on Trobriand Island. Macklin chartered a boat and went to the island. And when he got there, he did find a village, but it was completely abandoned, and there were no signs anywhere of Michael Rockefeller. He continued running down leads throughout the region, but he kept hitting dead end after dead end. He stayed out in the jungle long enough that his bosses back at the magazine began sending increasingly angry telegrams ordering him to wrap it up and return home. Macklin did eventually manage to track down a couple of Dutch missionaries who had lived in the area around the same time Rockefeller disappeared. Their names were Father Van Kessel and Ken Dresser. Van Kessel and Dresser told Macklin that they heard from the local tribesmen that Michael Rockefeller had been killed and eaten by cannibals, 
and they offered Macklin enough details that their story seemed to be the most plausible account of what really happened. Macklin would later return home and publish his findings first in Argosy, and then later in his own 1974 book, The Search for Michael Rockefeller. In later years, another story arose that only further added to the mystery. In 1997, author Paul Tuohy published a book, Rocky Goes West, in which he claimed that Michael Rockefeller's mother hired a private investigator to make a journey to Papua New Guinea in order to look for her son. According to Tui, the investigator made contact with some Azmat people and traded his boat engine for three human skulls, which the tribe claimed were the only white men they had ever killed. The investigator was convinced that one of the skulls had to belong to Michael Rockefeller. There is considerable debate over whether the story is true or not, but several years later a History Channel program added to the legend by claiming to uncover evidence that Rockefeller's mother actually paid the investigator a $250,000 reward for providing definitive evidence of what happened to her son. A few years later, another author named Carl Hoffman published his own book about Michael Rockefeller, Savage Harvest, in which he gives a more detailed account of what he believes really happened to Michael. Through extensive interviews with local tribesmen and Dutch missionaries, Hoffman believes that Rockefeller died as part of a ritual revenge killing. Just a few years before Michael Rockefeller vanished, the Dutch government had dispatched a team of soldiers to quash a bloody civil war that was threatening to break out between two warring villages. The patrol was met in the jungle by a party of Azmat warriors armed with spears and arrows. The members of the patrol were immediately nervous at the sight of these nearly naked warriors, who only managed to make them even more frightened when they began performing a native war dance right before them. According to Hoffman, the Dutch patrol panicked and opened fire on the warriors, killing five of them before fleeing into the jungle. As a result, the Azmat, with their ritual need for reciprocal death, were primed to kill a white man in retribution. According to Hoffman, when Michael Rockefeller washed up on their shores, he managed to stumble into a blood-crazed camp of cannibal headhunters with a deeply ingrained need to kill someone to balance the scales. Hoffman wrote that he spoke to a Dutch missionary who claimed to have seen Michael Rockefeller's skull hanging in one of the village huts, and that the rest of Michael's bones had been distributed among the village warriors and sharpened into weapons and tools. The same missionary claimed that the Dutch government knew precisely what had happened to Michael Rockefeller only they had covered the entire matter up in order to avoid the bad press. Although officials from Papua New Guinea's government would like the world to believe cannibalism is a ritual from the past, evidence to the contrary shows otherwise. Cannibalism remained so prevalent in the country that in 1971 laws were passed which criminalized the practice of sorcery. In 2012, police in the Madang province of Papua New Guinea arrested 29 members of a suspected cannibal cult were accused of murdering and devouring a number of local witch doctors in order to absorb their powers. That same cult still exists today and has nearly a thousand members. In 2013, a group of alleged cannibals threatened to disrupt parliamentary elections in one of the local provinces, threatening to kill and eat anyone who dared leave their house on that day. Extra police had to be dispatched to patrol the streets to prevent anyone from being eaten for attempting to vote. Although much of the anecdotal evidence seems to point toward Michael Rockefeller dying at the hands of native warriors, in recent years there's another intriguing piece of evidence that points to a different fate for the billionaire's son. 
In 2008, documentary filmmaker Fraser Heston, son of actor Charlton Heston, made a documentary, The Search for Michael Rockefeller. Much of Heston's film is based around Milt Macklin's book and investigation. While assembling footage for his film, Heston learned that Macklin had actually brought a cinematographer with him to document his trip. Heston managed to track down the footage, which had been sold to a stock footage company and long since forgotten. Heston found a treasure trove of more than 10 hours of silent, unedited footage of Macklin's journey that had been collecting dust in a London warehouse. Among the hours of footage was a brief shot panning across a large group of Azmat tribesmen, making their way by canoe towards shore. There, among the tribesmen, visible in those scant few seconds of footage, is a tall, bearded white man wearing war paint. The Conspiratus is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. If you like the show, please help support us by downloading us on iTunes and leaving us a good review. We're also always available on our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, as well as Stitcher and the Google Play Store. Thanks for listening.